Whether you're buying a new car, a used car, or refinancing your current car, FedChoice Federal Credit Union could help save you money. FedChoice makes buying a car so easy that you can do everything right from your smartphone or on a computer. Become a member today and you can take advantage of their great rates and financing options. Find out more at FedChoice.org. That's FedChoice.org. Membership open to federal employees, including contractors and their families. FedChoice Federal Credit Union, insured by NCUA. The studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the Hill. Tom Fitzgerald here with you, and this time on the Hill... We are joined by our guest. Mark Corman is a Democratic delegate in the state of Maryland. He represents District 16, which is essentially the Bethesda area. That's right. Downtown Bethesda area, lovely downtown Bethesda. Uh, He has been uh, in the Maryland House delegates since 2014. And Delegate Mark Corman, we appreciate you coming in on the Hill this weekend. Thanks for having me. All right. So one of the things we wanted to talk to you about, and other things we want to talk to you about, is the situation with 270 and the Beltway and what the governor does or will not do with with those roads. You represent a portion of, 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 of this area. What's what's the problem for folks who may not live in this area? And they've probably heard the phrase Beltway because it's usually referred to, you know, in Washington in not nice ways. But right. it's also and the Beltway is referred to not nice ways by people who live here as well, too. Yeah, actually, it's funny you say that. I wonder if people who hear the term inside the Beltway, outside of this area, really know what that even uh, even indicates. But, you know, I think the issue is that um, we have a lot of traffic congestion, and it's unpleasant for people. Uh, they just want to get to work in a timely fashion or get home after a long day in a you know, and, and be with their families or, or enjoy themselves and have dinner. And uh, the goal is to try to figure out how to make their commutes a little bit easier. I would just say that what the governor is proposing, I don't think is actually going to solve that problem. Uh, but I think the the idea that we want to make people's commutes better uh, is, you know, is a laudable goal. I mean, I agree with that, and I think we've all done a lot of work together to try to make that happen. It's just that this particular proposal I don't think is going to get us to where we want to go. And well, there's a lot of other downsides to it. Well, it's been fascinating to watch and to cover it is because it's one, it's, this is one of those stories that when I sit there and I watch all of you talk about it or debate it, I see people who all seem to have the same goal, but yet um, have different opinions on how to get there. Uh, and, and the goal is to get people moving and get them to their work and to cut down on their commute times. That, that seems to be across the board what everybody's goal is. Here. Well, I mean, yeah. I appreciate you saying that yeah. because uh, the governor does not believe we all share the same goal, and in that he's mistaken. Uh, I think we do all share that goal that you just described. The governor has wanted to create straw man arguments where he says that people who oppose his uh, proposal are pro-traffic, and that's absurd. I also have to commute to work. Uh, I get to ride the metro to my nine-month-a-year uh, day job, but I have to get on the Beltway to go to Annapolis for mm-hmm. three months a year. I also don't like traffic. Uh, but is that is that political political rhetoric though? Because you, you, I don't think anybody look, really believes you're pro traffic. Yeah, of course it's, it's political yeah. rhetoric. I'm just I'm thanking you because you're not uh, you're not buying into the governor's well, not uh, a political rhetoric. That's true. I, I, could, I can say things like That's that. True. I'm not a politician. <laughs> um, so let's talk about what the plan is right now. Let's start with 270. So what we've been told is that they want to widen Interstate 270, uh, which feeds into the Beltway. Um, and then add express toll lanes, easy pass lanes, onto that. Um, one of the things we've also been told is that what's free now is going to remain free. 
But I'll tell you, you know, one of the things I, I do when I report on this is I'll, I'll go and I'll try to talk to drivers. I don't try to specifically talk to drivers who use that road. And I got to tell you, when I talk to them, they like the idea. The people I've talked to who sit in the traffic like the idea of having more space for more cars. Why doesn't it work for you uh, just on a, on a practical level? Um, because the idea is if they open these toll lanes, some of those cars would go into the toll lanes and it would speed things up. A little. Yeah, I think we should just be honest about what we're proposing here. And you have to look no further than Northern Virginia to see that just because you add toll lanes does not mean traffic in the general purpose lanes gets dramatically better. So it's true that if you can afford the toll lane, your commute will probably get better. But the way the pricing is set, the general purpose lanes have to stay pretty congested to encourage the people who can afford it to get into the toll lanes. Now, that doesn't mean toll lanes are always entirely inappropriate. We have other toll lanes and toll roads and toll bridges and toll tunnels uh, in the state of Maryland. So I'm not personally reflexively um, anti-toll road. We should just be honest about what it is we're uh, talking about and what it might or might not do. I'll say on 270, which is sort of where the governor's plan has evolved to, because we were told for a year and a half that we had to do one integrated 495 Beltway, I-270, public-private partnership, adding two lanes in each direction the entire way. Well, there was some pushback on that, as you know, and the governors evolved a little bit to saying we're going to do 270 first. But what they mean by that is the part of 270 that's currently under uh, what's called NEPA review, not to get too far in the acronyms, mm-hmm. but shorthand environmental review. Uh, that's the segment of 270 between the Beltway and uh, the 370 Highway in Gaithersburg. So you're talking about a segment of 270 that's already six lanes in each direction and was already expanded. It's the segment of 27 that's already been expanded. That's a pretty big road now. Uh, It was expanded in the 90s. Uh, It was general purpose lanes, not toll lanes, and it filled up much faster than they expected. If you are going to do something in 270 on roads, and me, I would couple anything you do on roads with a multimodal approach, but if you are going to look at the road piece, the place that needs it the most, the place that needs what I'll call right-sizing, is north of that where it thins down to two lanes in each direction about like going Ur- into Urbana, Frederick. that area? Yeah, no, yeah, basically north of Gaithersburg, the road begins to thin down. It ends up two lanes in each direction. So what they're proposing to do now with this 270 segment is make it eight lanes in each direction, right, uh, south of Gaithersburg, and it'll still be two lanes in, in each direction north of there. The bottlenecks are just going to get worse. So if you're going to start somewhere, I would start with right-sizing the northern portion of 270 to more closely match uh, the southern portion. I think the reason they have not wanted to prioritize that is because it may not pay for itself mm-hmm. uh, with tolls. And um, first of all, I don't think any of this project is necessarily guaranteed to pay for itself. Most of these P3s still require some investment of public money. That was true of the 495 uh, toll lanes in Virginia. Almost a quarter of that uh, construction of that project was publicly paid for. Most of these P3s require um, public contributions. But at the same time, the Hogan administration is proposing north of Baltimore expanding the toll lanes there. And has acknowledged those will not pay for itself, but they still are planning to do it because they think it will provide necessary relief. So some public investment in areas where we need it, even if it's not going to be a a paid-for by itself proposition, can make sense. And that's I think, would make a lot of sense north of Gaithersburg. Again, me, I would couple that with multimodal transit options as well. Um, What we're left with right now is that phase one is going to be 270. That was the decision. The the southern segment of 270. the southern segment of 270 is going to be a phase one what scratched a lot of heads for folks and including even some of the montgomery county officials who you know said they were pleased by that move um was the fact that this will not include the american legion bridge which is the bridge for people who might not be from this area it is the bridge which 
uh, goes over the Potomac River and separates Virginia from Maryland. Um, it's become a choke point. We had a truck accident there a couple of weeks ago, which threw the entire two states into into gridlock. And a lot of people feel there either needs to be another bridge added or an expanded uh, bridge or replacement of the one uh, we have right now. I, is that something where you think um, there could be some movement? Because a lot of people, they'll talk about 270, but you can go and get two states worth of people who will look at the American Legion Bridge and, and find it's insufficient to what's the reality of the traffic. Yeah, although Maryland owns the bridge, so yeah. Virginia is not talking about kicking in money to do something on the American Legion Bridge. Yeah, I mean, I think there are things you can do on the American Legion Bridge. This is something the Montgomery County government, I'm at the state level, but our county government yeah. level, has requested for years that the American Le- uh, Legion Bridge itself be looked at. What the governor said at the Board of Public Works meeting uh, off the cuff the other day was that you couldn't do the American Legion Bridge if you weren't doing the whole beltway. Unclear why that's um, the a lot case. of people and, come down 270 and yeah. get onto the onto yeah. The bridge. So it's just sort of unclear why um, that's the case. I and mean, I think the issue is that the governor is very committed to this idea of two lanes in each direction from the American Legion Bridge all the way around the Beltway, mm-hmm. all the way up to 270. And that approach just doesn't make sense. What would make sense is saying we're trying to move this many people through these corridors. Mm-hmm. What is the best way to do that? And if you want to go to the private sector to get ideas, which might make sense, the private sector might have some good suggestions, some innovative ideas that our State Department of Transportation bureaucracy can't think of, uh, you should be going to them with that broader um, request rather than how are you going to add two lanes in each direction. And what's ironic about this is the Hogan administration has done that before. They came out with actually a pretty smart $100 million proposal that's being implemented on 270 right now where they went to the private sector and said, we want to spend $100 million on I-270. How would you do it? And they came back with a lot of innovative ideas, many of which are currently being implemented. That just makes a lot more sense than saying um, we're going to add two lanes in each direction, even though the road is a different amount of lanes right now in different segments. uh, And we just are committed to doing that. We're convinced it's going to work. We're not going to show you any proof that it's going to work, but we're sure it is. He's clearly somebody that, you know, when he gets his eyes on on a big project, he does tend to weigh it. And, you know, I'm going back to the purple line. You know, when he ran for governor the first time, candidate Larry Hogan, I think he flat out said one time that he wasn't, you know, that in favor of the Purple Line. And a lot of us who had covered him expected that when he became governor, he was going to nix the Purple Line. That that didn't happen. Um, is this a situation where you see the governor uses this as a, 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 with that same train of thought that he brought to the Purple Line? I have an idea. They have an idea. There's plans here. Let's go do it. Let's make this happen. Let's build something. Well, the governor took an extended period of time to review the Purple Line. The Purple Line was basically ready to begin, like, the day he got into office. He wanted to spend a lot of time um, reviewing it. I think, you know, you can disagree whether or not that made a lot of sense. But when they did that, they came back and made a bunch of changes. What they viewed as cost-cutting exercises, they're they're exercises that may also um, hurt the project in the long run. But the point is, they didn't just take as gospel what was passed down to them. They took their own look at it and said, we need to make some adjustments here. Well, that's what they need to do here. They need to make some adjustments um, for uh, local preference and just better uh, transportation practices, because I don't think adding two lanes in each direction um, makes a ton of 
of sense. And I'm not sure that the transportation experts in the administration really believe it makes a ton of sense to do it that way either. I'll give the governor credit for not killing the Purple Line. Mm -hmm. I'll also give the governor credit for signing dedicated funding for Metro. At the same time, this governor has uh, shown no interest in investing in our commuter rail system, and he did cut a mass transit project in uh, in Baltimore City, uh, what's called the Red Line, not our Red Line, but the Baltimore City Red Line. It was a subway and, line, and, and they're still mad about that up in Baltimore. Absolutely. I, I mean, it was. Uh, it I was, was up there a couple of weeks ago for the turmoil with the mayor's office there, and some people were still talking to me. And about like that. the Purple Line, it was very far along in the planning process when the governor came in and uh, and pulled the plug. You know, they also pulled very early from this. They had some what I would call straw man uh, transit concepts in the early environmental scoping documents, and they you know immediately pulled those out and said we're not doing anything on transit with this. Now the comptroller, to his credit, sort of forced them to put some transit ideas back into this plan during that Board of Public Works meeting that you uh, covered with the monorail study and the potential subsidy Mm -hmm. for transit that could come out of uh, toll revenues. They are doing that grudgingly because they need the comptroller's vote to uh, advance this project. Um, One of the things I I hear from people when I I talk about the, the Maryland proposal with PEEP3 is people will immediately <clears throat> throw out Virginia to me. And they'll say things along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing here. Well, when I drive in Virginia, they've just redone their portion of the Beltway in Virginia. They've added these express lanes. It's better. But, boy, when I get to the American Legion Bridge, when I get to Maryland, things come to a slamming halt because Maryland hasn't done anything. Um is that a valid criticism of the state of Maryland in any way, or does it kind of hit the nail on the head? Because it seems like there's an image problem here, too, because, you know, that really is the gateway to the state for a lot of people when they get to that point. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about that particular segment, yeah. having done, you know, quote-unquote nothing, I, I agree that more could be done there. I don't talk to a lot of people who drive in northern Virginia who view northern Virginia traffic as in you know, some kind of driving <laughs> Shangri-La. It's, and that's not, it's not, and no. that's not only because yeah. of the American Legion bridge in, uh, but they have in, done work. There. They have done work. They've done a lot of work. They have. The question is, is that work actually solving the problem mm-hmm. we are trying to solve? And I'll just say, you know, the, one of the concerns that many of us have with this project is it's been really overpromised. It's going to solve congestion. Uh, it's going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. They're not going to take any homes. It's not going to cost the state any money. Uh, I was taught as a young man that when something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Many of those promises they've already sort of had to backtrack on. It turns out the the study they're citing for their greenhouse gas emission figures, the author of that study says they are misquoting, you know, what that study finds. They uh, they have uh, already admitted they're going to have to take more homes and property than they originally thought. We just need to understand what it is we're getting here and what we're trying to do. But on the issue of the greenhouse gases in the homes, is there any public highway project you could think of like on a grand scale where eminent domain hasn't been part of the conversation the the issue here yeah the issue here though is the governor uh himself said uh we're not going to take any people's homes right so the governor set that situation up um i i don't think eminent domain in and of itself is always bad, right? Uh, we, it's being used for the Purple Line, certainly. It's used for lots of infrastructure my projects. My brother's old house in New Jersey is now a 
an on-ramp to Route 9 North yeah, I, <laughs> New Jersey. I mean, obviously, it can be very difficult for the people who um, live there, but it can be a legitimate tool mm-hmm. for the public good. The situation here is a few things. One, the governor himself was the one who set this situation up where they claim they were not going to need to take homes and property and can't live up to that promise. Two, some of the, some of the land they're going to need is parkland. There's a hospital there. There's all sorts of things that are um, extremely complicated to deal with. So you just hit the nail on the head of what might really be the fly in the ointment on this, and that's parkland. The National Capital Planning Commission has a say in this. And if they're going to need to take parkland, that could raise a possibility where this could really get bogged down. Do we know yet whether parks are going to go along with this or not? Yeah, so I think what we don't know is uh, whether parks needs to agree to it or whether the state can use its eminent domain authority on this particular type of parkland. And I would say the law is not fully um, settled there. And I think you saw during the Board of Public Works meeting that you covered a little bit of um, what I'll call hedging around this from the State Highway Administration. Know. where uh, um, Nobody se- really seemed to have the answer to that. Yeah, I mean, what they were saying was they're going to continue to work with park and planning. I, I think they, they view their trump card as being able to use eminent domain for that parkland, and I think that's a bit of, bit of a legal question about whether or not that can happen. One of the things uh, County Councilmember Tom Hucker told me, though, was that uh, I had asked him, you know, he had Hucker at one point when he was at the microphone said that he had a moral and legal obligation to oppose this. And I had asked him, well, what do you mean by legal obligation? Are you looking to litigate this? And he said he didn't think that the county could because he was understanding that Montgomery County might not have legal standing in this case, but the parks would. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think parks, homeowners, I mean, lots of people would have legal saying yeah. to sue. I mean, I think, you know, litigation is somewhat inevitable with a product mm-hmm. uh, of this size. The Purple Line obviously faced, you know, litigation. Use another recent transportation project in their area. It got through it because that was done the right way and had the right environmental review. I'll also note about the Purple Line that it's also a public-private partnership. It is under the same P3 law. It's the only project actually currently under construction under this P3 law. But in that case, they finished the environmental work before going out and doing the privatization. I want to talk about some other things. I want to talk about you as, as well, too, because you grew up in this area. You're from this area? I grew up in Rockville, right where you the uh, uh, 270's already been expanded to <laughs> six lanes in each direction. You went to Richard Montgomery High School. What, what year did you graduate? Uh, 99, so it was what's now the old Richard Montgomery High School, right. uh, where the football field is now is where our school was. Um, my sister moved to this region in 1975, and I can mentally and physically see all the changes in it. Um, back in 1999... And I arrived here to to work in 2002. I've seen massive changes in Montgomery County. Um, from from your perspective, are you about where you want to be in Montgomery County with density development, state services, the things that are needed? The population is changing here. Yeah, no. as well too. When you, both as a resident and as a, a legislator. Sure. So we, I mean, we have a lot of work to do yeah. in Montgomery County. There's no question the county's changed. I mean, just the demographic shifts in the county since I graduated from high school are uh, tremendous. I mean, there's over 160,000 students in Montgomery County public schools now. Um, one third of those students are on free and reduced meals, which is a broad indicator of poverty. About 25% of our elementary school students are English as a second language. Um, that diversity has a lot of benefits. It also brings a lot of costs and challenges that we need to uh, deal with. Some of those do require uh, investment in uh, 
from state services. We need to be pretty specific um, when we go to Annapolis and advocate for the county. I think we need to advocate around specific needs rather than just saying we need more. So we need to talk about things like the purple line that we want the state to invest in or uh, more funding per student for English as a second language students would be really important to uh, Montgomery County. We just need to be specific because many counties around the state uh, face uh, significant challenges as well. And we also have a lot of real strengths uh, in Montgomery County. Our proximity to the capital region, some of our uh, urban nodes like downtown Bethesda, downtown Silver Spring, they're the envy of other parts of the state. I mean, I know they have issues. I live near downtown Bethesda. I know about some of the headaches, but to most of the rest of the state, they really look like um, golden jewels. And so we just need to explain to our colleagues around the state why we also have some particular needs. Is education, uh, does education take up a, a, a lion's share of your time when you're working on things to bring back to the county? Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a significant issue. Um, lately, it's it's been a lot on the issue of school construction. Montgomery County Public Schools are growing pretty rapidly, between 1,500 and 2,500 students a year over the past few years. My high school, when I went there, was about 1,500 students, so that's mm-hmm. a high school student, uh, high school. Uh, or more of students every year that are being added. And so we've had some success over the past five years. We've about doubled the amount of state resources that have come back for school construction. Now, let me be clear, these are all tax dollars. So when I say state resources, it's really uh, your resources as a taxpayer. But we've made sure that that's one of those needs we've identified for Montgomery County. We have a particular need around school construction. We need more state uh, support for that. When you look at development, um, particularly in Bethesda, um, I can remember first going to Bethesda. I think it was probably 1976. And uh, it was a lot of one-story buildings, a lot of kind of, you know, retail. Rio flat. Grande and the cement factory. Yeah, yeah, flat, flat building. That's not Bethesda anymore. It's it's slowly becoming a city, of which, you know, Fox 5 will become a part of it in a couple of years when we move up the street. Um, I belong to some of these Facebook groups Bethesda back in the day, and you know, I, I read these things from some of the Me too. old-timer uh, Bethesda that are the people that some of them live here, some of them don't, that are, that are you know, a little bit concerned about, uh, about the change in character, the, the, the change in, in, in look. Is that just a natural outgrowth for the, from the advantages that the area has, being so close to the nation's capital, having the red line go right through the area, convenience? Yeah, I, so, of course, change is hard, and change isn't always done right. And some of the projects that have been done on Bethesda maybe could have been done in a, a different way. I think it's hardest on the edge neighborhoods, the neighborhoods just outside those urban nodes. I happen to uh, live in one, and we have complaints about traffic and looming buildings over us, but we also love being able to walk to the restaurants and to the metro and to the landmark movie theater. And yeah. so there are, um, you know, good things and some bad things. I would say, overall, it's a positive but that doesn't mean there's not a lot of growing pains. And uh, we could always do better. I mean, there's a lot of issues just with, you know, uh, better pedestrian crossings, sure. right, in yeah. downtown Bethesda that would really make things better for those uh, edge neighborhoods. It is a lot of growth. Um, and a lot of times when you see the, um, the the renderings, the drawings of what's going in there, it can look really uh, intimidating. The change obviously happens on a more gradual um, basis. But uh, there's definitely been a lot of uh, a lot of change since since you moved here or since I was growing up here. That's for sure. Uh, I want to end on uh, some of the changes that went on um, at the top of the uh, Maryland House of Delegates at the end of your session. Um, Michael Bush, who was the uh, Speaker of the House for 16 years, passed away. He had had a liver transplant and had complications. And um, I knew him fairly well, not very well, but uh, enough that um, uh, I. 
I found him somebody who um, really did have his hand on the shoulder of a lot of people and uh, taught them a lot. And uh, one of the things I, I, I talked about when he passed was people used to call him coach. And it wasn't just because of his involvement in sports. He would coach members on, on how to work with each other. You know, there's a lot of hard-headed people in politics on, on both sides. And he really was somebody who could kind of um, show people how, how to work with each other. What was that like that last week? Because he passes right at the end of the session, and he had been such a fixture there for so long in his sneakers up there on, on yeah. the rostrum. Um, yeah, eating his know. licorice. He, his um, yeah. So, I mean, Speaker Bush was a towering figure in Maryland politics, and people in, in our part of the state are not as tuned into state politics because we're so focused on the uh, national scene, which is like most of what you cover, right? On these well, Sundays. you know, I told the story yeah. that, you know, when, when I got here in 2002, I had covered the New Jersey State House, And um, he kind of like laughed at me when I told him I did, didn't understand the concept of a three-month session. Yeah, part-time <laughs> So, I mean, he's just a really towering figure. He really abided by the principle of one Maryland and making sure Montgomery County had what it, it needed and Western Maryland what it needed and Southern Maryland, the Eastern Shore, and, of course, Annapolis, which he represented, had to have what uh, it needed. He, uh, that, that coach thing has become a little um, almost cliche to say about him since he's uh, passed away, mm-hmm. but it was 100% true. He, what he would do was you know, he would coach you know, members, as you were describing, to sort of get along, get things done, but he would also see the particular skills or talent in people and help them um, uh, develop those further and use them for the betterment of the whole uh, state. And, you know, he was just one of these guys where, you know, he put his arm on your shoulder or shake your hand and just look you in the eye and say, you're doing a good job. And you'd feel really good and you want to go out there and, and work harder. You just had a, uh, uh, an ability that's sort of hard to, to, to put into words uh, in the way he interacted with people. I'll say we have a, a successor to him, Speaker Adrian Jones, who I've had the pleasure of serving with for five years on the Appropriations Committee. And she uh, is, I, I think, poised to be a great um, leader. And one of the important things about Speaker Jones is that she is a real unifying figure for the House. We were facing a very divisive situation in the aftermath of Speaker Bush's uh, tenure, and she really came in as someone who could unite us. We, Some of us stood outside the doors while those <laughs> discussions were going on. Um, was When it became clear um, that the two candidates that were vying for the Speaker's position were neither one of them were going to relent, was Adrian Jones a, 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 an easy consensus pick because she had actually been doing the job for the last couple of weeks? It happened very, I'll put it this way, it happened yeah. very organically, the yeah. way it turned uh, to, to speak now Speaker Jones. Uh, it was, you know, sort of a, a logical choice in a lot of ways, given that she had been Speaker Pro Tem and had been, um, you know, as you said, sort of presiding over the House uh, a lot this past uh, yeah, session. Speaker Bush had gotten sick. Yeah, he uh, had. A, it was about a week before the end of the session. He yeah, said he, he wasn't going to be returning. Yeah, he'd had a few different um, health issues during the session, so she presided quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was very organic that we realized we were not going to get to consensus around either of the two candidates who were actively in contention that day. And so it was very logical for us to turn to uh, to Speaker Jones. And I think you know not only for the Democratic Caucus, which is the room you were sitting outside of, but of course we went to the floor and all the Republicans voted for her as well. So I think a unifying figure for us. And in you know because legislatures are very different things than executives, presidents, and governors, and, and things like that. Um, is she someone who can operate on an even plane with Mike Miller, who is the very long-term veteran, legendary president of the Maryland Senate? Because you are equal bodies of 
of government. Sure. I mean, part of this uh, part of the speaker's job is to interact with the Senate president and negotiate with the Senate on our behalf, as well as the uh, executive branch. And, you know, Speaker Jones has been in the legislature for over 20 years, yeah. had many important posts before this, including Speaker Pro Tem, chair of our capital budget mm-hmm. subcommittee. So she's very used to dealing with the Senate uh, and the uh, and the executive branch. She is a workhorse, having served on a couple of her subcommittees. I see the notes she has prepared <laughs> right. before she walks into the room. So if you're going in to negotiate with Speaker Jones, I hope you've done your homework. So um, you've got till January before the, the Maryland General Assembly is, is, is back in session. How do you spend your time uh, between now and then? Sure. So, I mean, the two biggest ways I spend my time is I have a day job. I'm yeah. an attorney in D.C., <laughs> right. and I have a family. I have a wife and two young kids. But the legislature, while it's um, you know referred to as a part-time legislature because we're in Annapolis for three months a year, uh, you're actually doing work you know, year-round. Yeah. There's usually some committee work. During the other nine months, you might be on various work groups. I'm on a work group related to You're not kicking up your heels for nine months. So right. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of constituent yeah. meetings. Obviously, you plan time. Uh, uh, you plan legislation for the next session. And just yesterday, I was out knocking on doors, talking to voters, which I try to do uh, every year, not just in election years, to know what's, uh, what's on their minds. Mark Corman is a Democratic delegate for the 16th District of the State of Maryland, and he's been our guest on the Hill today. We appreciate you listening. That's it for this time. We'll catch you next time. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., this has been the On the Hill podcast. I'm Tom Fitzgerald. We'll talk to you next time.